My name is Kelsey Lasher, and I am one of the pastors here at Hope Denver, and I am so excited to get to be the one to deliver the message to you tonight. Thank you for being here. We know there's lots of other things you could do with your time on a Sunday evening, but you chose to be here to hear what God has for you, and we thank you for that. We're so excited to spend our evening with you. If you don't mind, I'd like to just open us up with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Lord, I thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for this opportunity to get to share your word and your truth with the people here. I pray that your words would be upon my lips. Let us uh, hear what you have for us. Speak to us tonight. We turn our attention to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. On July 4th, 1776, delegates from the 13 American colonies were gathered in Philadelphia. I'm sure you all have heard this story a little bit, but we're going to start with some good stuff here. So if you don't know anything about me, I'm a big history nerd. I am obsessed with it, really. And so we're going to start talking about this. This is really exciting stuff here. Um, this, the delegates from the 13 American colonies were in the midst of convening to decide what would be the fate of their homes, right? And on July 4th was the day that they actually declared independence from Great Britain, right? We know the story. We know about the Declaration of Independence. We know the immortal words that flowed from Thomas Jefferson's pen all men are created equal, and these colonies are of right and ought to be free and independent states, right? Have you guys heard those words before? I love those words. I make my family read them with me on the 4th of July, actually, and my friends, anyone that's with me on the 4th of July. It only makes sense. We read the Christmas story on Christmas, the Easter story on Easter. Why wouldn't you read the Declaration of Independence on the 4th of July? I mean, there you go, something you learned tonight. So I love these words in the Declaration of Independence, but there are a few other words that are a little lesser known at the end of the document. So right after independence has been declared and the grievances have been aired, a war is as good as started, right after that, and just above the signatures of these men that declared independence, there's this sentence. It reads, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The founders of our country, in the midst of dedicating themselves to a cause, thought it was important enough to dedicate themselves to each other. I've always found that to be very beautiful and powerful, that they're thinking about this great thing, liberty, that will transcend their lives and their generation, and they paused for a minute at the very end and dedicated themselves to each other, right? I bring all that up because I think this is a great example of what is required of people who are living together under a powerful cause, right? This dedication to each other. People that signed the Declaration of Independence, they were dedicated to the cause of liberty, and they were united under that. We here tonight are perhaps united under a different cause, a greater cause, the cause of Christ, right? We're here because we want to follow him, we want to live the way of Jesus, we're, we're united under that cause. And so I think that it's required of us the same level of dedication to each other. That if we're going to live together under this great, big, weighty calling, we need to be committed to each other, right? Just like the founders were in this, this last sentence here. We're in a series right now called Culture, The Way of Jesus. And tonight we're continuing our section on belonging. And I want to turn the lens inward just for a minute tonight and talk a little bit about what belonging in the midst of people who follow Jesus looks like. And I can think of no better way to do that than by boiling it all down to the idea of friendship, right? Friendship is where you find belonging. It's where you identify with other people. 
So we're going to look a little bit about the power of biblical friendship tonight. What does it look like to be friends with people in the church? What can we expect to give? What can we expect to receive? How do we dedicate ourselves to each other? What does belonging amongst the people of God look like? I think that a good way to answer that question is, of course, by looking at scripture, right? There's a beautiful story in John that talks about Jesus being a friend and having friends. So we're going to look at that tonight. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John, we're going to look at chapter 12, um, beginning in verse 1. John is one of the Gospels. We've been there a few times in this series, so you maybe have turned there before. But I'm going to read this to you, and feel free to follow along in your Bible or up on the screens. This is John 12, 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. So that's a little bit of a chunk of scripture there. We're going to break it down as we go. Um, but let me just tell you a little bit about what's going on here. Um, this scripture mentions that this is taking place six days before Passover, which tells us that this is taking place at an extremely tense and scary time in Jesus' life. This took place the night before Passion Week begins. If you're not familiar with that term, it just refers to the week leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. This is taking place the night before Jesus would ride into Jerusalem and um, in fulfillment of prophecy, declaring himself the king of the Jews, the Messiah. A few days later, he would clean out the temple in Jerusalem, causing more strife. He would have the Last Supper with his disciples. He would be betrayed by Judas, as the scripture references. He would die on the cross, and then he would raise again three days later. This is taking place literally hours before that all kicks into gear, right? And what's going on here is that Jesus is um, being hunted in a way. He has stirred up a lot of trouble for himself with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And the previous chapter tells us that people, uh, the religious leaders in Jerusalem had declared that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they were to tell the religious leaders so that Jesus could be arrested. So Jesus knew that there was a, the right time and right place for his uh, death and resurrection to occur. And so he had waited it out, um, waited in a, a town called Ephraim, just a few miles away, and had not been moving about freely amongst the Jews at this point because he knew that they were looking for him. But custom dictated that he would return to Jerusalem for Passover, and here we are right before Passover. So he's making his way to Jerusalem, as is expected of him, and as the religious leaders know that he's doing. But our story tells us that he was in Bethany. He stopped in a town called Bethany before he went to Jerusalem. Now Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem, and while he's being hunted in the city just a few miles away, Jesus is here being honored at a dinner in the home of friends, right? Now, I think it's important to note all of that context that's going on in Jesus' life, that there's this tension, this fear, this, this um, culmination of his ministry, right, that's about to take place. But what do we find him doing? 
we see him relaxing at the home of a friend, right? Isn't that interesting? We see him enjoying friendship. We see him finding belonging, finding this, this comfort and hospitality and, and just the depth of, of um, a sense of home that's found among the friends, right? I think that speaks to the importance of friendship in Jesus' heart and mind. And I think that there's a lot we can glean from the relationships that are exhibited here. If you haven't uh, heard of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus before, they were some of Jesus' closest friends. He spent a lot of time with them. They're referred to often in scripture um, at a few different places. In the previous chapter, John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Pretty cool stuff. If you want to hear a great, great sermon on that, look at our podcast. Pastor Kelsey, the other Pastor Kelsey, she preached on that a few weeks ago, and it was great. Um, but Jesus, in that chapter, he's moved to tears at the depth of sadness in the lives of his friends because he loved them so dearly. We also know that he spent a lot of time in their homes. He was there often. Um, and actually, throughout Passion Week, scholars think that he perhaps stayed at their home multiple times. He would go to Jerusalem in the day and then retreat back to Bethany at night. All of that to say that it's fairly obvious from Scripture and, and all of that that's offered there that these were his very close friends. These relationships were deeply emotional for him. He found solace and sanctuary in their home. And this is where Jesus found his sense of belonging with Martha and Mary and Lazarus and his disciples. These were important people to him. So these are good relationships to look at if we want to talk about what is required of us in finding belonging in biblical friendship with each other. So let's start with Martha. There's not a lot said about Martha. There's only two words, actually. But we're going to talk about those two words for a little bit because I think they're important. It says in, in verse 2, it says, uh, Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served. Martha served. I think that it's really cool in the Bible when you look at the characters that are mentioned, that they're very consistent characters, like they're real people. Martha is mentioned in scripture in previous occurrences, and she's serving a lot. That's what she does. Like, that's what she's known for. She's hospitable. She serves. She probably was a good cook. She was just really good at setting that, that sense of home for people, right? That's happened a lot in scripture. And here she is doing it again. She's serving Jesus. She's opened her home. She's been hospitable. She's making him feel comfortable, right? I think that this is important to know in our friendships. There's something to be said about serving each other in our homes. There's something powerful about it, don't you think? About opening up your home and welcoming people in and meeting each other's physical needs. Hunger is a physical need. We all share it. And we can appreciate good food together, right? We can, we can bond over that. I'm, I'm one of those people that wakes up in the morning and thinks about what I'm going to eat, like, right away. Is anybody else like that? So the people in my life that are good cooks, they, they got me. Like, they love me well if they can cook some good food for me. I think Martha was like that with, with Jesus. She served him well. She was hospitable. And I think that we need to apply that to our own friendships. Jesus here in, in one of his darkest hours is enjoying the gift of service and hospitality from one of his closest friends. If we're going to find biblical belonging and biblical friendship with each other, we need to be willing to offer hospitality and service. We need to be willing to open our doors and let people into our homes. That doesn't mean your home has to be perfect. It doesn't have to be pretty. You don't even have to be a super good cook. Just let people in. Be hospitable. Let people find belonging in the comfort of your home. Because here's the thing that happens when you share that, that, that context with somebody. They settle in and relationships start to grow, right? 
you begin to be comfortable with each other, to share a little bit of your story, hear a little bit of theirs. And we see that happening in the next example of friendship here. Let's move on to Lazarus. Um, In verse 2, it goes on to say, uh, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Again, not a ton is said about Lazarus, but it paints a picture, doesn't it? Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him, him being Jesus. So when I picture this, I think it's a lot like things are today. Reclining at the table. What does that mean? It's just hanging out, right? You're just relaxing together. You're spending time together. You're doing nothing except eating and drinking and talking and listening and laughing. You're just being together. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And isn't that kind of a rare thing sometimes? We're so busy, aren't we? We're so busy all the time. But we, we, we use that excuse to say, I'm too busy to get together. I'm too busy to open my home. I don't have time for that, right? But here we see Jesus and Lazarus just reclining at the table, just relaxing. They're not accomplishing anything. They're not striving for anything. They're just being there, giving each other the gift of time, right? When we look at this example, we can see the importance of that. In her book, Bread and Wine, A Love Letter to Life Around the Table, Shauna Nyquist says, what's becoming clearer and clearer to me is that the most sacred moments, the one in which I feel God's presence most profoundly, when I feel the goodness of the world most arrestingly, they take place at the table. Have you guys ever experienced that before? When you're just sitting around with people, not necessarily doing anything except being together, you feel God's presence, you feel the connection that's in, the, in between you, right? You feel like you belong together, right? It's so important. It's so important. And it starts with opening up our schedules to each other, allowing that time for nothing to happen except being together. And this is a hard thing to do, right? This is hard to give the gift of time to each other. But here's just one quick practical way. We're talking about the table and and opening up your homes and wasting time together at the table. That's an easy one to do, I think. Because you're going to eat anyway, aren't you? You have to eat anyway. You're going to eat dinner. You're, you're going to make dinner. I have three kids, and I cook a lot of food, like a lot of meals, because there's a lot of people in my house. And um, So I'm, I'm going to be making food anyway. Why not just invite somebody over to, s- to spend that time with us? That's an easy way to open up your, your schedule and your time and just to include people in it. So we've seen this, this, this uh, progression here of but biblical belonging building on itself, right? Hospitality and service that Martha offered led to connection and relationship and the gift of time with each other that Lazarus offered. And that leaves us at the next friendship that we see, this next posture of friendship that's demonstrated. And I think that this is the most beautiful part of it. And this is the most unique to biblical friendship and biblical belonging, I think. Look at verse 3 if you want. It says, then Mary took about a pint of Purinard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So we don't use nard much these days, so you might not know what that is. Maybe you do. I, I, I didn't know what it was, so I did a little bit of research on it. This, this perfume, this oil, was very rare. It was very expensive because it was hard to get. It was actually grown in India in the Himalayas, and our story takes place in Jerusalem. So think about ancient times and travel and how hard it would be to get that to, to marry. Um, the, the verses later tell us that it was worth a year's wages. Think of owning something that's worth your entire year's salary. 
and how much you would treasure that and how hard it would be to even obtain that, really. Who can spend their whole year's salary on something? I can't. I don't know. So Mary had this perfume, and it was very rare, very beautiful, very expensive. And because of that, it was oftentimes used for very specific purposes, one of which was for preparing people's bodies for burial. And Jesus says as much in, in verse 7. He says, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. And so Mary has this very expensive perfume, and it's usually used for burial. And here she is dumping it all out on a man's feet, and the man is alive, right? That's kind of odd. But then she compounds that with something even more odd. She pours it out on his feet, and then she takes her hair and she wipes it with her hair. Now, women in those days that were respectable did not unbind their hair in public. And this isn't so hard for us to, to understand the oddity of this. I mean, I, I wouldn't take my hair and rub it on somebody's feet. I, I just, that's weird, right? That's something that we can relate to in a way. And so if, if, if I was there watching this take place, it would be extremely powerful because Mary has taken this valuable thing, her treasure, and then she's taken her hair, her symbol of her beauty and her identity and her place in society, and she's just thrown it to the wind. She's just given it all to Jesus. She's poured it out and done something so beautiful with it, right? And Jesus perceives this as something that's preparing him for burial, which is referring to the suffering that he's about to, to undergo, right? This portrayal that Mary has here, this is so beautiful and so powerful for us because it shows her offering all that she has to her friend to support him in his time of need and his suffering, in his darkest hour, right? The Bible tells us in Galatians 6.2, it says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus must have been so greatly burdened at this moment, right? He knew what was ahead of him. He knew all the suffering and the rejection and the turmoil that he was about to face. He re had referenced it multiple times in his ministry, and he was, he was God. He knew what was coming, right? And then here's his friend doing this beautiful thing, pouring out all that she has to relate to him and his suffering, to relate to, to this terrible thing he's about to face, right? She, she gave of her treasure. She gave of her emotions. She gave of her dignity. She didn't withhold a thing from her friend in his darkest days. And then she poured it all out as if to say, I'm here. I'm going to share this with you. You don't have to face it alone. You don't have to suck it up and bear it. I'm here, and I'm going to bear this load with you, right? Isn't that such a beautiful thing? This is belonging in biblical friendship. It requires us to bear one another's burdens, not just open our homes, not just listen, not just be a buddy. It, it actually requires us to take that terrible thing that the person that we love is facing and put it on our own back and carry it with them, right? To bear it, to identify with them, and to support them in it. That's what Mary was doing here. When I was six, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I remember the day that we found out that it was cancer because I think I remember it most vividly because our house was so full of people, right? It was the middle of a, a weekday, just like a regular old weekday, and the afternoon. And these people in our lives, our family and our friends, they literally dropped everything they were doing and just came over so that they could just be with us, to cry with us, to cook for us, to hug us, to, to just support us in that moment of sadness. And that day, 
is so special because it was no different than any other day that came over the next few years. My mom battled cancer for almost three years, and in that time, she faced chemotherapy and radiation, bone marrow transplants. She traveled um, to other places to receive treatment. It was a, a very tense time for her, right? She was really sick and really fighting. And these same people that dropped everything in the middle of the day, on that weekday, and were there, stayed. They were there for those years of her fighting. They picked us up from school, they dropped us off, they cooked for us, they cleaned for us. They uh, went to the hospital at any, any time, day or night. My, my mom's best friends, um, they would sit with her during chemo sessions and throw her parties when her treatment was over, right? They, um, at one point in time, she had to go to Wisconsin for treatment because the drugs that she was taking here in Denver were not doing what they needed to do, and there was this experimental drug in Wisconsin, and so we thought, great, let's try it. So she went and lived in Wisconsin for a, a good amount of time while she was receiving that treatment. And her friends, these same friends and family members that had been there always, flew on their own dime to go be in Wisconsin with her so she wouldn't be alone. And they took turns and made a schedule and made sure that she wouldn't have to be by herself. And those friends' husbands watched their kids and uh, made sure that it was all taken care of. They sacrificed and they pressed in, right? At another point, my mom had to have medication administered uh, like 24-7 through an IV catheter that like ran under her clothes. And so she had to wear this ugly fanny pack to like hold the medication. And she hated that fanny pack. She felt so ugly and disgusting wearing it. It was not cute, she felt like. And so her friends bought fanny packs too and just wore them with her all the time, right? This, is, this, this was them bearing her burdens. This was them pressing in. So eventually she... Uh, couldn't fight any longer, and she uh, passed away about three years after she was diagnosed. And that was, of course, an even darker time in our family's story. It was my dad and my little brother and I, and um, these same friends and family members that had been fighting alongside with her and bearing that burden had lost somebody that they dearly loved and had hoped to see a different ending to this story, right? But they kept pressing in. They kept being there. They kept opening their homes and Coming at the drop of a hat, they kept cooking for us and cleaning for us and making us laugh when we needed to. They kept inviting us in on a Friday night so we wouldn't just sit there sad. They were there. They were there at our darkest hour for years, you guys. This wasn't just weeks at a time. This was years at this point that these people were this. They, they gave us belonging. They gave us friendship. They bore our burdens with us, right? Eventually, our family found joy again, and my, my dad got remarried to a woman that's mothered me and loved me so well for the last 18 years. And these friends were there for that, too, for that happy moment, and these family members. But I, I bring all that up to say I think this is exactly what we are supposed to do, these people that loved us well. These were our church friends that did this, our people from our church that just pressed in and loved us and took care of us. And... The most important thing that they did, though, was not all that stuff, not all those great things that they did that they offered us. The most important thing that they did was pray for us and to speak truth over us. They reminded us for years and years and years that God is good and he's faithful, and no matter what the outcome of this situation was, he'll be good and he'll be faithful and his love will endure and his plans for us are good, right? That's the context that my faith grew in watching these friends press in, watching these people love us well, and reminding us of who God is. 
And you know what? That's what happened in this story, too, that we're talking about. Look at the end of verse 3. It says, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, we talked a, a bit before about how this perfume was often used to prepare people for burial, right? So if the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, this beautiful perfume that Mary poured out, then that means that the house was filled with a proclamation of what Jesus was about to do, his death on the cross and his resurrection, right? That means that the atmosphere of that place was filled with a proclamation of Jesus' goodness and his love and his sacrifice and who he was and why he was worthy of praise anyway, right? That atmosphere was just soaked in it, in this beautiful action. And when, when our family walked through what we did and those people pressed in and loved us well, that was the atmosphere. It was filled with the fragrance of who God is and his goodness and his love and the provision that he gives us, even in the midst of bad stuff because of the people that he places in our lives, right? See, when we are finding biblical belonging and we're pressing in in a way that offers of ourselves to others and is willing to receive that love from others, it's more than just meeting our needs, right? It's more than just making us feel good. It's doing this. It's proclaiming the goodness of Jesus because of the unity and the love that's on display in, in the people that love him, right? It's filling the atmosphere around us with who God is because a beautiful picture is being painted here amidst, in the midst of his people, right? Friendship has the power to do that. It has the power to, to have this beautiful thing on display. In his book, The Company We Keep in Search of Biblical Friendship, Jonathan Holmes says, friendship has the power and ability to tell a story. And biblical friendship can tell a story that demonstrates that God came to us in Christ to redeem us for himself. The ultimate purpose of friendship is to point to God and his glory. This is the crux of it. This is the whole point, right? But isn't that just like God? He's so good like that, that he would provide an, uh, the answer to our need, to our very desire to have relationship and friendship, right? And in the midst of providing for what we need, he's going to point to himself, right? He's going to bring glory to himself. He's going to show that he is good and he is more than just a provider of, of friendship. The unity that's on display and the love that people see in the midst of God's people will point to who he is, will glorify who he is, right? That's the point because when we follow Jesus, our lives no longer become all about meeting our own needs, right? It's no longer about, I want this, I need that. It's about, I'm supposed to point to God and who he is and all that I do, every relationship, every word, every action should glorify him. And that includes our friendships with each other because people are watching us. The world is watching us and they need to see a beautiful picture painted of who Jesus is. And the love that he offered, the sacrifice that he offered, the unlimited gift of relationship that he offers, right? And in the meantime, we get to enjoy connection with each other. We get to enjoy time spent together. We get to enjoy help from each other, right? It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful the way Jesus did this. Maybe you're here tonight and this belonging sounds very foreign to you doesn't sound like something you've ever experienced. You're lonely or you're carrying a really heavy thing in your life all by yourself. I have to tell you, that 
not how he lived. That's not how we're supposed to live. Loneliness should not be a part of your story. Following Jesus does not give you a hall pass to avoid all the bad stuff of life. You're going to have bad stuff happen to you. But it certainly should give you somebody to walk through it with you. It should give you friendship and relationship and people to bear that burden with you. That's the way he designed it. And that's what we want to create here at our church. That's what we hoped for. That's what we prayed for. When we dreamt up this church, that was it. People living in community, people showing each other love and sacrifice and hospitality and giving of each other endlessly so that God would be glorified and people's needs would be met. That's what we want here. That's what we're doing. The way that we have envisioned this happening a lot is through our hope groups that are meeting all around town at various points in the week. There's one at my house. I'd love to have you there. Um, they're, they're all over the place. And if you feel like this belonging is missing in your life, if you feel like this depth of friendship and relationship is not a part of your day-to-day, it can be. And a great place to start is by uh, joining one of these groups. I would encourage you to go to hopedenver.com and look up the different hope groups that we have. Find one that, that works for you or that seems interesting to you. I guarantee you, you're going to feel loved there. You will. You'll feel loved there because I know the people that are at these groups and they're awesome. They're these kind of friends. Maybe though tonight, there's another need that's not being met in your life. Maybe it, it transcends this whole idea of belonging in biblical com- community because you don't even really know what the love of Jesus is. You, this, this idea of living for his cause and with his people, it's foreign to you because you've never experienced that. And, and maybe it seems unrealistic to you that people could live like this, that people could love this well. And to that I would say, you're right. It is unrealistic, except for Jesus, except for him and his power in in his people. Because when you have experienced the love of Jesus and the friendship of Jesus and the power of that, you have no choice but to offer it to others. And it's his love that's being offered. You see, Jesus is the friend that we're talking about tonight. He is this friend. The Bible says that he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's the friend that will be with you in your darkest day and your happiest day. He's the friend that will cry with you, that knows you intimately. He's the friend that loves you despite whatever it is that you've done, whatever it is you're thinking, whatever it is you're afraid of. He is that friend. He is the friend that will never leave you, never forsake you. He will always be there. He proved it on the cross. He proved it in his resurrection that nothing can stop him from loving you and pressing into your life and being there always. His faithfulness never stops. His love never stops. He is this friend. And if you don't know that personally, you can. It's for everybody. It's for you. It's for me. It's for everybody. And tonight is your chance. All you have to do is say yes to a relationship with him. All you have to do is say that you desire it. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. It's a confession. It's a belief. It's a willingness to be in relationship with him. 